The future of business is responsible. El futuro de los negocios es reescribir el crecimiento de las empresas. Conscious co-mingling of growth and impact. Le futur du business est conscient et responsable. The future of business is intentional and transparent. The Welcome to Sahih Business School's Future of Business podcast, a student-run podcast here at the school. My name is Jordan. I'll be one of your co-hosts this year, and I'm really looking forward to sharing with you some of the conversations that we'll be having. Before we do dive in, just a quick note that the audio on this episode is a little bit rough, but I'm sure you'll still enjoy the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Often when consumers of art think about the art world, we, we don't always think about the role that business plays in its production and distribution. But art is an extremely resource-heavy industry, and understanding how art is funded necessarily involves business, both good and bad. So when thinking about how art is funded, I wanted to speak with a practitioner who has seen the role of business in art firsthand. Fortunately, Oxford's community is a space where extremely talented artists from all around the world come together and meet. And a few of these talented artists even join us here at, at Say Business School. So I'm excited to have Helen Kashap here with us on the show uh, to explore how the arts are funded. Helen is an American-Canadian classical pianist and actor whose career has led her from Montreal, New York, and Paris, and all throughout Europe. Alongside a professional career, she runs her own teaching studio in New York, which she maintains while pursuing the combined MBA, as well as a Master of Music here at Oxford. Having a career that has spanned multiple geographies containing a variety of mechanisms to fund the arts, she's the perfect person to explore this issue today. Welcome, Helen. Thank you. It is so good to be here. No, of course, it's great to have you. Um, Look, I want to start by contextualizing the conversation. So why is it important to have a well-funded arts sector? Um, and what does it actually look like? What does it mean to, to fund the arts? So really, really interesting question. Um, first of all, I've been an artist for my entire life. Uh, I grew up in a household of artists. Both my parents are professional violinists. They were symphonic musicians. Uh, and then my dad runs a music conservatory. So this issue of funding and the arts has been central to my own experience, both witnessing my family and then also my own pursuits as a concert pianist. So to circle back to the question of why funding the arts is really integral, I mean, it kind of gets to the crux of the issue behind why the arts are important, right? So um, Jordan, a document came out by the by the English Arts Council about five years ago now that cited the arts as being really integral to building a healthy society and healthy lives. So they cited three components that I just want to bring up sort of, it seems tangential to your question, but I think it's really central, which are that the arts tend to increase people's capacity for life, enrich their fundamental experience, and provide a safe site to build skills. Um, and so if we think about the importance of those three particular elements, we start to understand that it's really crucial and integral to fund something that's so seminal to the growth and the health of a society at large. Um, and so it becomes this question of then who is responsible for funding um, the arts and, and how important really is that pursuit? Let's perhaps start with your career then. How have your artistic endeavors been funded? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so I would say I've sort of thought of my life in terms of three uh, three phases, so to speak. Uh, so the first phase was really about developing as a concert pianist. And I grew up in Canada. Both of my parents emigrated from the U.S. And um, in that state, I had the capacity to be funded by um, 
state sponsors and by the government. So a lot of my endeavors from an early age, and I was I was already performing from the age of nine, were government sponsored. There was a Canadian foundation called the Canada Council for the Arts, which is heavily funded by taxpayers. Um, and I think to date, they've contributed something like $150,000 towards my studies, towards uh, competitions, towards travel. So um, the phase in which I was a, a concert pianist from a really young age was government funded. Um, and in the second phase of my experience, where I was sort of a different level of performer on a on a new professional scale, I moved to the U.S. Uh, when I was 14 to train at the Interlochen Center for the Arts, which is a sort of a feeder school for Juilliard and a feeder school for some some really um, intense pre-professional pursuits. My uh, systems of funding changed and they became privatized. So I started to have sponsors, patrons, um, a lot of scholarships from from specific schools and um, tapping into the various systems that the U.S. has, mostly private, uh, for, for art sponsorship. And then just to speak really briefly about the third phase, where I was mostly a pedagogue and an entrepreneur in New York City or in the arts, I've really had to tap into both patronage systems of support, so having private patrons that support the arts, but also using institutional sponsorship. So working with companies like Steinway, the 92nd Street Y, uh, the, the New York Council for the Arts, these institutionalized um, bodies of sponsorship. Great. And I want to hold us there for just a second and dive more deeply into these different aspects of your life and the way that the arts were, were funded. So returning to that, that early stage of your career, what were some of the benefits with a government-funded art sector? That's a great, great question, Jordan. Um, I think for one, it made it so that my studies could be continuous, my creativity could be kind of unbounded, and there was a lot of safety, right? There was a big safety net. So my artistic pursuits from a really young age were tremendously expensive. If you think about Olympic athletes, for example, and this is really no different. This is the same terrain. You think about all that they need, the equipment. You know, in my case, I needed an excellent piano. I needed a really great space. I needed training. I was training three to four times with my coach per week. Uh, and then at a certain point in time, even as a young person, I needed also physio and coach to travel with and these various things. And then, of course, all the money that goes into the travel itself and the competition fees, et cetera. So uh, just to know that I had that taken care of by a government body, and that was a fairly regular, really trustworthy, they had a lot of capital. It was a, a very large margin of taxpayer contribution towards that. There was a high level of faith in the fact that I could predict what I could do because I knew that the funding was going to be there. So it's interesting you described the safety Part of my concern, perhaps, with the government funding the arts is does that kind of stifle some of the more uh, controversial and more challenging types of art that is really important for the development of our society, but harder for, say, government taxpayer money to be to be going towards? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. My gut reaction was to say not at all, actually quite the opposite. Um, and, and, and I have to keep in mind that I'm coming from Canada where it's a fairly open-minded, the arts are very progressive. I would say on the spectrum, it's, it's fairly liberal in terms of its artistic palette and temperament. Um, and just from what I know personally, there's no sort of traditional convention that runs through, or I, I wouldn't say no, but there's little traditional convention that runs through the standards and guidelines for these government grants. And so therefore, it does tend to promote both a career like mine, which was fairly traditional as a classical pianist, but also you know, colleagues of mine who were pursuing things that were much more unconventional were also supported and sub substantially so. So I think it, um, to your question of does it sort of 
put things into a narrower spectrum. Not at all. In fact, I felt it, it broadened it. Look, I think that's really good to hear because I was concerned that with a government-funded art sector, we'll get plenty of Shakespeare and Mozart, but less art that might be uh, more confronting to the general public or, or criticising of those in power. And I think it speaks to a maybe a slightly a slightly adjacent critique of of government funding is that because the money is taxpayer funded, right? So, and at a certain point, the government is answerable to the taxpayers. So if a piece of art, which is planning to be um, anti-religious, for example, in Canada, is there a chance um, that that type of expression is going to be limited because at the end of the day, it's the government um, that that are writing the paychecks. And so perhaps when you have a public that is more concerned with just putting food on the table compared to these creative expressions of art because it is taxpayer funded, there, there may be pushback, right, from the general community when they do have these different types of exhibits that they don't see as directly benefiting um, your, your everyday person's way of life. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I think, you know, I don't know that we're entirely talking about the same thing. I, I think on one hand, the government body in Canada has a very rigorous application process wherein artists apply for certain kinds of sponsorship. Mm-hmm. And there are, you know, there are rigorous guidelines that um, sort of stipulate what that money can contribute towards. And if someone came with a, you know, a very sort of flagrant, uh, inflammatory, something that was going to be very politically controversial, that might not, you know, get the kind of sponsorship that artists training to do some some pretty high stakes things would. But I think in my experience of seeing where the funding goes, they do tend and want to fund a broad array of things so that we have a kind of artistic diversity. It's certainly not very homogenous. All right, that's that's good. Yeah, I guess that's where we can start to talk about different ways that artists can attract funding in just a moment. So moving forward, then you, your next step was to increase level of training in, in New York. Yeah. Uh, why couldn't you find that type of training in Canada? Is that a function of just the size of Canada or is it the fact that the US does have this different mechanism for funding the arts? Um, what was that What was that transition like? And Yeah, it a that's a really great question too. So just to clarify, I actually, when I moved to the US, I went to a, uh, a conservatory called the Interlochen Center for the Arts. And that's not in New York. That's actually in Michigan. Um, I made my way to New York, but I was, I was there at this sort of small, very intense um, boarding school that my mother actually, who's a concert violinist, had gone to um, growing up. But to your question about was that kind of training not available in Canada, I think, um, you know, I want to be delicate here a little bit because I had an exceptional early training in Canada that was private. I had a very good team of private teaching. But I think in terms of the really sort of historic, well-developed, reputable institutions that train artists at a high, high level, a lot of them are in the U.S. Um, And I would say, although I don't know 100%, but I would say that's the truth and that's the same for training in, you know, Olympic sport or in, I know a lot of um, colleagues and friends who have started out in Canada and then let's say they go down to to Florida to train as, you know, competitive tennis players or swimmers or I I think there's, you know, the the broad array of offerings and the level of intensity of training and competition is greater in the U.S. um, broadly. And of course, there are exceptions and Canada is sort of coming up in terms of its systems and actually it's generated some extraordinary artists in the last two decades in specific. So I think um, there's a lot to be said there, but a lot of the training is is still formally held uh, in the U.S. 
So let's let's explore this this U.S. model for a little bit. What are some of the differences in terms of the way that, that the arts funding happens in, in U.S. versus Canada, or at least from your own experience? Yeah, super great question too. Uh, oh my gosh, you're full of excellent questions. <laughs> um, he's done his research. So uh, so basically, you know, the U.S. has two sort of broad funding streams that are um, they're they're governmentally held. The the NEH and the NEA the National Endowment for the Arts. And they are funded by taxpayer money, but a lot of the systems in the U.S. are privatized, if you think about healthcare, education, et cetera. And this model operates under that same premise. We do have these very these very small two uh, government-funded bodies that I just cited. But in general, the arts funding in the U.S. is in line with its other fundings for education, as I just mentioned, and healthcare, and is privatized. So sponsorship then comes really from you know, urban elites, from uh, business corporations, from institutional philanthropy. And that's very discretional, right? It's up to sort of the discretion of those bodies. And oftentimes it comes down to personal interest. Is this person interested in that particular art? So there's a lot less standardization uh, in the U.S. There's a lot more capital to be had. So stakes are higher. Discretion is higher. You can under, you can see here how this might start to become slightly complicated. Um, a lot of personal politics at play. Whereas if we diverge and we go into the Canadian system where they have large bodies of government funding in the arts, where there are processes in place to secure it, you can assume or you can imagine that there, there's a more equitable process of access to arts funding. Um, and so probably more people have access to it. It's more broadly and fairly administered. Um, and, you know, say one thing or the other about it. I think the fact that there's more money to be had in the U.S. just generally, um, it, it makes for there to be some very elite artists coming out of the U.S., very elite training programs, very, uh, very, very high level. So it's just it's just a different game, really. I just want to quickly hold you there and try to um, add a little bit more detail as to who are the groups that we're, we're talking about here? Who are the people that surround the art world? I think my um, the, the broad expectation is that arts, particularly under the, the ballet or, or kind of classical music, is dominated by by the wealthy. Um, is that is that fair to say? Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. I mean, these now I'm talking in in sort of broad and stereotypical stereotypical strokes, right? So I want to be also delicate in acknowledging that, but. Um, I'll just use a local example. I am flying back to New York in a few weeks, and um, I'm going to go to the to the opera. and And you look at uh, you know the the Metropolitan Opera ticket page, and I think that the least expensive ticket for you know a reasonable seat starts at about two hundred and fifty dollars. Whereas you do the same for London, as I was in last week going to a concert, and you can get an excellent seat for thirty five pounds. And so I think just to, just to understand, and I use that example, that very simple example just to illustrate the fact that the amount of funds required obviously are going to sort of funnel in a certain kind of uh, person, a certain part of the population that has uh, that disposable income, for example. And so the arts tend in the U.S. to be funded, as I said previously, by urban elites, you know, and, and those who have that kind of money or corporations who it's a chicken or the egg. It sort of attracts, you know, they're one and the same. They attract each other. Um, and so what that says is then artists' lives are often dependent on those, uh, that part of the population. And so I'll, I'll withhold to some extent judgment on that part of the population because they've largely been my own sponsors. And, and a lot of my friends in my community come from that part of the population. But one does have to speculate that there is not an impartiality there. It's certainly what you do and what you produce as an artist is largely dependent on those who are supporting what it is that you're doing. Whereas in Canada, because that's not the dynamic, that would not be the case. 
Can we explore that dynamic a little bit, a little bit further? What is that relationship like between? This is one of the things I, I came across in preparing for this interview mm. about this this idea of a, of a patron, mm. which to me was directly out of how Mozart got his start, mm. as opposed to how an artist in the twenty first century should be should be getting their start. So, can you explore that a little bit? But what does that relationship look like today? Wow. Um, and you're right to cite Mozart. And another is, you know, the, the prime example of, of Haydn and the Esterhazy family and how Haydn produced all his works under, or most of his works under the patronage of, of the Esterhazys. And the patronage system was, it was the main system for, for centuries, you know. You think about Bach and Mozart and Haydn and, and Beethoven and how they were always in the, in the palm of somebody very, very wealthy, uh, producing works on, uh, for, for them and for their courts and, and things like this. So, modern patronage, right? That's sort of the question at hand. And when you strip away all of the infrastructure that housed uh, both literally and otherwise Haydn and the Esterhazys, and you think about the support of patrons to modern artists, it's quite complex. I, I will say that. So one could think that in a system like, I'll just use a local example, uh, one that I know well, like New York, an artist comes to train in New York at let's say Juilliard, and after life in Juilliard, they have to make a living in a very expensive city that is the financial center, uh, you know, of of the world or of of the U.S. And it's tremendously expensive. Let's talk about today, and the way to do it really is is likely, or one of the ways to do it is to have a patron. And so there are patrons that are you know very interested in the lives of artists, in art itself, for myriad reasons, for personal reasons, for institutional reasons, for reasons of perception, for social reasons, you know, myriad reasons. Um, and, and I have heard of and I have experienced that patrons will either pick up or sort of pitch an artist um, and support their careers. And that can be for the length of two, five, 10, 20 years, etc. I've known artists who have gone on their entire careers, modern artists, to have these patrons. But, and I use the but instead of the and, because as you sort of highlighted, I think the complexities of that kind of dynamic are so extreme and those complexities largely depend both on who the patron is, what their intentions are, and what the relationship between the patron and the person being patroned um, is really. So um, I'll, I'll stop there and you can inquire further should you wish, but I think that's a very complicated dynamic. Yeah, for sure. I think, as I imagine, right, the patrons of today don't have the same political designs of Medici, right? Like it's mm. a different dynamic today. But what as a as a consumer of art like myself, I think, and then we can talk about the artists themselves. What does what do do I perhaps lose knowing that, or not knowing? What do what do I lose about uh, about art as it is produced because of this relationship between patrons and, and artists? Is there a certain type of art that isn't being produced, or it is being produced that I'm just not aware of? Interesting. Is the question what do you, as a consumer of art? lose or not lose as a result of this patronage system? Yeah, or just in broadly, right? Like the, the art industry, what, how is it impacted because of the patronage system? Yeah, okay, good. So that makes sense. So I think if you, if, if you could imagine um, the art that is supported, therefore the art that the artist can pursue is largely dependent on sort of the tastes of or the preferences of their patron, right? So you kind of are beholden to your patron, uh, for better or worse. And if your patron is somebody who's whose tastes align with your own, excellent. You know, and hopefully a patron would choose to be a patron to somebody with whom they felt a resonance. So I can see that not being an issue. In fact, I can see that being a really fruitful collaboration. However, if you think about those with deep pockets now, especially in a, an industry like New York that is really sort of finance-laden, 
uh, and finance is not always connected to the arts as it perhaps once was or more so, um, you can get patrons who have very little understanding or knowledge of the arts being patrons to those who have really um, interesting artistic ideas and a lot of artistic integrity. And so I think the division between that is is really fascinating. And as I've witnessed both personally and otherwise, you have to be pretty careful about who you choose as a, a patron and whether you want to accept that kind of support. And that's a very interesting thing because we need the support as artists. We need the support. There aren't a lot of strains of support and yet you need to be careful. So given how essential this patronage is, the facilitation of, of the art actually being produced, how does that impact the artist on, on a personal level? And does that kind of flow through to, to the work itself? Mm, that's a great question. And I'll, I'll try to think on sort of a macro level. I mean, one of the things about being an artist that I don't know if you can tap into unless you've been one is that you are, and this sounds a little meta, but you are your work, right? You you are one and your work. And so what you create as it so intrinsically relates to who you fundamentally are, it is so deeply wound that I think the patron in being a patron to you and your work has to be or should be deeply respectful of you and therefore of your work. And so if that relationship is not respectful, and I would say both from personal experience and from observation, that relationship is often quite exploitative, that that's not just a comment on you personally, but also a comment on, on your work. And so I think we sometimes as artists who are really, and I don't want to use this very cliche term, struggling artists, but I really think in a landscape like New York, which is no longer the 70s or the 80s, where art could still live there, there's no home, there's no viable home for the arts anymore in New York because it's just we've been priced out. I think the tendency is to prioritize the support of whoever will give it over and above really being cautious about who it is that's supporting you and whether they respect you or whether they're prone to exploitation. And a lot of these people hold really intense positions of of power and, and oftentimes they're not particularly respectful. So I think you do have to be very careful about um, about that relationship. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to note the, the necessity of these types of relationships given the lack of, of public funding for the arts. Um, moving away then from the artist individually and the production of the art and zooming out perhaps to, uh, for lack of a better word, like the display of it, right, or the supply. Mm. So I'm thinking more like the philanthropy type, mm. the, 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 the Sackler families who are mm. uh, investing in, in, in wings in, in the Guggenheim. Sure. What, what does that look like um, in terms of its impact on, on the art that we consume? Yeah, that's a great question. And they're an interesting example. And I think you brought up earlier this sort of idea, whether it's formalized or not, but this idea of art washing, you know, and having these massive um, sums of money by these prominent families or organizations um, support or underwrite big artistic projects. So obviously we need those, right? We just opened the new Geffen Hall in New York City, which was underwritten by David Geffen, who actually himself, interestingly, was uh, very, very close to the arts his whole life. And um, so so that's a, a unique example. It's not the Sackler family who is, you know, trying for better or worse to sort of rectify some of the ills by these, um, these contributions, which you know, while they are greatly appreciated, they do come with some kind of tint. And I think we're still sort of reconciling what that means. Um, but I think mo more broadly to answer the question, the philanthropy, whether it's institutionalized or from individuals, 
is crucial to the arts. You know, David Geffen just don't, and I, I, I don't actually, I, I don't want to misquote, but I think it was something like $100 million um, contributed towards this new hall, which now the public can enjoy. And they've done an extraordinary um, amount of programming that underwrites programs for the public, for free, for kids, for educational sectors, for outreach. You know, it's just, we, we can't operate at this scale with the arts being as expensive as they are and not government funded without philanthropy. And, and whether that's institutional or whether it's b- individual basis, but it's it's crucial today. Yeah, it's, as I just really fascinated to hear about these differences as well between the Canadian and the US experience. Do you have any, I know, look, I'm not looking for any kind of sociological study here, but is there, a, like, why do you think the US has this kind of more uh, individualistic um, way of, of funding the art? Yeah, that's a great question. And we'd have to, uh, you know, get a a political historian in here to really be specific. But we know, I mean, this goes back to sort of the, the pillars of uh, of the U.S. and as entrenched in their constitution. But it's a very individualistic society. And so like uh, other pillars of that society, you know, education and uh, healthcare, these are all privatized in the U.S. So it follows, the system follows in that vein, right? And so, so there are Funding for the arts, just as our funding for healthcare and education is privatized, that's how that system functions. So anything that's proposed that is against the grain of that fundamental way of operating, there's often a large reaction to. It was in 2017 where we tried, uh, you know, there were many, many voices who were trying to completely cut out the NEH and the NEA. And the truth is that it occupies such a small sliver of taxpayer money that it was incredulous, you know, to cut it out um, because it's so insignificant. But it was just that it goes against the grain of the way that the American populace thinks and has been built, whereas in Canada, we're a more socialistic uh, country. We have socialized um, healthcare. It's increasingly becoming privatized, but it's built on this premise of global healthcare as education system is largely subsidized. So the arts are too, you know, and it it follows in line then with the politics that sort of underpin the entire society. And it's interesting to see right, the massive amounts of talent that is attracted to the US and and what it produces, it's we will benefit from it. Right. True. True. So I guess you know, so as we start to to look forward, then right, how what is kind of an ideal way that you could start to see the arts funded in a more maybe equitable way, but also still ensuring that talent is being produced and our communities are still being benefited uh, from the arts. Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, if we had a crystal ball, you know, I think it'd be interesting to see. I think as we've been talking about, there are obviously national differences of how this plays out. I can be realistic or I can be idealistic. I think one thing to to think about is just that we're going to need a hybrid system, right? The arts are increasingly expensive. They're increasingly resource-laden. More and more people are drawn to them, thank goodness. But in order for the arts to thrive, it needs funding. So obviously the systems we've talked about already enhancing government funding, enhancing institutional and individual philanthropy, enhancing corporate funding, um, you know, campaigns by by all the public, not just the urban elite. But then something we haven't talked about that I think is really interesting is sort of this grassroots funding, right? It's this sort of the Kickstarter, the Patreon, the, you know, platforms for the world to support the arts. And I think um, when you avail those platforms to people around the world and make that accessible, I think both the art becomes more accessible, but it also becomes more fundamentally woven into the, the cultures and the communities, right? And art art is nothing if not for the community. So I think that's a really uh, exciting space to explore. Yeah, I think that's something that really it, it excites me, right? It's almost like a democratization of the way that the arts are funded and hopefully that will kind of create a more diverse and um, inclusive type of art being produced. But perhaps for those listeners who aren't as aware of, of 
all of these sorts of platforms like Patreon offer. Can you give a bit of insight as to how, how they work? Yeah, so different platforms sort of do different things. And again, this is a space that's being uh, heavily innovated right now. And so probably something pops up every day. But let's take, a, you know, a particular plot like Patreon, for example, um, an artist can build a profile on Patreon and can um, develop a list of basically patrons, right, or supporters, and they don't have to be people you know, it can, it's really broadly and globally accessible. And people can tap into your body of work, whether it's visual art or music or, you know, and you develop this fan base or this this base of supporters. And every time you put out a new track or you uh, produce new out- artwork or something, your patrons have the capacity to uh, support you financially. And, and so you generate this fan base through a technological platform that enables you to build this global fan base while also sustaining your artistic practice in a really holistic way. Yeah, really interesting. Even as something as kind of basic as, as helping with, with cash flow, I imagine, right? Like artists, I, I presume when their income does come in, it, it's it's lumpy. It's, it's after a, a big piece of work is finished. And because you've got so many potentials, have so many different contributors um, contributing at different parts, which I'll make kind of evens out that, that cash flow issue. Great. Right. Jordan, that's actually the point of it. And that's something that didn't come up earlier, but this is actually crucial. It's that... The arts, something, and I can talk really locally as a as a former concert pianist and pianist. I spent you know eight to ten hours some years practicing in a, in a in a small cubicle of a practice room. Right, I wasn't actually doing, I wasn't giving or sharing anything. Right, it took me three to four months to build a program, but during those three to four months, I still needed to pay rent and eat and travel and train. And you know the expenses are innumerable and they're tremendous, but. The truth of the matter is that for four months, I was effectively in hibernation, right? So like you need someone, whether it's the government or a patron or a group of patrons or whatever, you need someone to support the livelihood of artists while they're not actually in the moment of sharing. Because a lot goes into the painter in in the studio or the, the pianist in her studio, you know? So so you're absolutely right. We need this. It's like a job. And this is where we have this disconnect in society. We think, well, what's the job is when the pianist is on the stage in front of 10,000 people. No, actually, the job is every Every day when she or he wakes up at seven in the morning is in the practice room until 10 p.m. and goes to see the physio. That's the job. That's what we have to support. And so we need some form of intervention, right? Because there is a market failure. They just fail to recognize mm-hmm. that. You know, there's a, there's a point of disconnect. There's a, there's, yeah. But well, it's a really interesting place to, to leave it. We start to talk about kind of the, the, the digital way and how we can uh, get more of a grassroots involvement into yeah. supporting artists. I think that's a really exciting place. We we do have a question that we finish with for, with every Future of Business podcast episode. Amazing. Um, which in 100 years, what do you think the, how do you think that art will be will be funded in 100 years if you could get out that crystal ball? Wow. If I had that crystal ball, you know, I'm not a techie. I'm actually kind of antiquated in that space. And, uh, but I think probably the way that everything seems to be moving, uh, be it, you know, all everything with healthcare and, and education and in every industry, we're moving so towards tech and AI and machine learning. And I think, I think so much of the funding for the arts and the way that we proliferate artistic content is going to be digitized. It's going to be all about technology. It's going to be, we're going to be so globally interconnected that I would say that these funding systems are in a hate to say this actually, but I think it's probably moving in this direction. It will have less of a human component. It will be less reliant on individuals and individual choice and, and the, the choice of corporations, but it will be somehow more uh, digitized. Well, that sounds like a whole other episode just there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Amazing. Thanks, Jordan. Bye.